is Don Lockholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 93, for the week of October 13, 2021. The related website for this podcast where you get all the free stuff is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, October 13th, the moon is just past first quarter in our evening southern sky. By next Tuesday, October 19th, the moon will be nearly full, big and bright and up all night. Full moon is the next day, Wednesday, October 20th at 1456 Universal Time. With the moon moving northward along the ecliptic this week, from the northern hemisphere, the moon will rise about a half hour later each day, especially near the end of this week. That's much more quickly than when it normally rises, which is 40 to 50 minutes later each day. Saturday, October 16th, is declared Observe the Moon Night. Astronomers all over the world are setting up their telescopes to show the moon to the public. It is time to exhibit this gibbous moon. The moon will be about 85% full and, in the constellation, Aquarius. Tell your hippie friends that this is the age of Aquarius. They will not know what you are talking about nor care. There is still time to plan and schedule an event for your neighborhood. Why stop with the moon? Show them Jupiter and Saturn and their moons, too. A multi-mooned evening. The moon passes south of the planet Saturn on October 13th and south of Jupiter on October 14th and into October 15th. This would be a good time to go out and find Jupiter and Saturn during the daytime using the moon as a guide. Find the moon first. It will rise in the afternoon, but it will be much more than half full and easy to find. Use your telescope and focus on the moon. Get a sharp focus. Now, this is important. Using a planetarium program, discover the offset at that moment between the moon and the planet, and then at the telescope, move over to the planet. Jupiter is easier to see. It has a high surface brightness. And on the disk of the planet, you can see the bands. As for Jupiter's moons... I have heard of them being photographed in the daytime, but I've yet to see a report of them being seen visually in the daytime. The moon passes south of Saturn before it passes south of Jupiter, but Jupiter is the easier one to see in the daytime. Saturn, about 15 degrees to the west of Jupiter, is not as obvious in daylight sky, but once you find it, you will be able to see the rings on the planet. The planet Venus passes just north of the bright red giant star Antares, 
on Friday, October 15th. It will be about one and a half degrees north of the star. This provides a good binocular view with contrasting colors. We have a meteor shower coming up at the end of this week, peaking on the morning of Thursday, October 21st. But unfortunately, the bright moon will be in the sky that week. The shower is known as the Orionids, and the meteors radiate from the constellation Orion, and, and they come from Halley's Comet. Your best shot of seeing it is to look prior to the full moon on Wednesday, October 20th. In fact, by the end of this weekend, the moon will be up nearly all night long and into the morning, making the viewing of this meteor shower difficult this year. Here in the northern hemisphere, the nights are getting colder. Now when I go out comet hunting, I have to wear clothes. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, October 13th through Tuesday, October 19th? It depends upon where you are located. This week we have four zones. All you need to know is your latitude. Those living north of 35 degrees north will not see the ISS this week at all. So for much of Europe, Canada, Russia, and much of the United States, even though we'll be showing the moon, we will not be able to show the International Space Station. Between the equator and 35 degrees north, which is Central America, Northern Africa, you will see the International Space Station in your morning sky for at least part of the week. Between 50 degrees south and the equator, the ISS will be in both your morning and evening sky for at least part of the week. Now this is South America, Australia, most of Africa, and Indonesia. In both your morning and evening sky for at least part of the week. South of 50 degrees south, the ISS will be in your evening sky only for much of the week. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com, enter your location, then click on ISS. Comet 29P Shawasman Walkman 1 remains bright at magnitude 10.5 after having four outbursts in a row a couple of weeks ago. It is in the constellation Auriga, in the northern hemisphere, it rises about two hours after sunset. Your best bet, though, is to wait until the moon sets to see it. This is a very unusual comet, and this might be the best opportunity in your lifetime to view it through the telescope. It seldom gets this bright. After this week, the moon will be in both the morning and evening sky, and the opportunity will be lost. Last week's podcast had a map showing where it is, or you can go to heavens-above.com and click on comets to get its exact position. I did, on my birthday, observe the bright star Arcturus in my evening sky. There were some clouds, but I could still see the star. As mentioned last week, I look at that star every year on my birthday. I have been working on a project, and it is not done, but I want to talk about it for a few minutes. 
I've been wanting to discuss this for months now, and finally I have enough data to speak intelligently about it. Over the past 45 years of my systematic visual comet hunting program, some 8,800 hours of searching the skies, I have run across a lot of fuzzy objects. Most of them are known galaxies, clusters, and nebula. I keep track of what I see in each session. For instance, this morning, while comet hunting for more than three hours, I picked up 49 galaxies with my 18.5-inch half-meter reflector telescope. And I saw seven meteors and 14 satellites. I usually do not see this many nebulous objects, and this may be a record for me. Suffice to say, it was a busy morning of comet hunting. So, most of what I see are known objects already cataloged and well-known. They include the 110 Messe objects and the 7,800-plus new general catalog objects and so on. They are plotted on the star maps that I use and also in the database on my tiny computer, the Sky Commander, attached to my telescope. It has a search feature, so when any of those objects are in the field of view, the Sky Commander tells me so. Sometimes, about 5 to 15 times a year, I pick up an object that appears fuzzy but is not listed on the star charts nor in the computer. As a comet hunter looking for new comets which appear as fuzzy objects, this can be an exciting moment. When this happens, I stop sweeping and pay full attention to this object until the issue is resolved. I then look at the object carefully. Is it a small group of stars? Even two close stars or three or more? I'll often pull out a Barlow lens and increase the magnification to see if I can resolve the object into separate stars. Using my red light to look at the star maps will shrink my eye pupil a bit and give me a sharper image so that maybe the stars can be resolved. Perhaps half the time I will recognize it as a small group of stars and note that fact. Prior to 1988, and I began comet hunting in 1975, so by 1988 I had already done nearly 4,000 hours of comet hunting. But prior to 1988, I would make a drawing of the object on the back side of my telescope log sheet. After drawing a circle to represent the field of view, I drew in the suspicious object in reference to the surrounding stars. Comets will move in reference to the stars. Everything else will not. Then, if it were to move, I would be able to note it. Most of the time, it did not move, and so it was not a comet. Beginning in 1988, I received and began using a star atlas called the Unimetria 2000. I began, and still do, mark each unknown fuzzy object on this atlas, which comes in two volumes, Northern Sky and Southern Sky. I put an X in the atlas where the object is located using a pencil. 
Then next to it, I would usually write the date and time it was first sighted. This is very similar to how Charles Messier made his catalog. He plotted the fuzzy objects that he saw onto his star maps. I am doing what he did, plotting unknown fuzzy objects that I pick up while comet hunting. I guess we comet hunters think similarly. In the, in the 32 years since I got the atlas, guess how many objects have been plotted? Tired of guessing? Okay, 268 X's are on my maps. Now I am semi-retired. I have more time and also have access to large imaging telescopes. These are the SLU telescopes located in both the Canary Islands and Chile. I do not own them, but I can rent them to image parts of the sky for me. So, for the past few months, I have been using their wide field telescope to examine each of these plotted locations. After the object is imaged, I download it to my computer. This telescope can see much fainter than I can and has better resolution, and therefore I get a very detailed look at each suspicious object. I have now imaged nearly 90% of the 268 suspicious objects on my star atlases. This is what I have found. More than half of the time, which is more than 100 times, I picked up a faint tiny star cluster. These clusters are made up of anything from three stars that are close to each other to eight to ten stars bunched together. These are sure hits. The object in the follow-up photos match my drawings exactly. I am working on a book about all the suspicious objects that I have picked up over these past 45 years. Getting the photos is part of writing the book. So... Do I call these objects new clusters? Let's assume that I search all the open star cluster catalogs. And there's a lot of them because a lot of people have made their own catalogs of open star clusters. But my cluster is not in any of those catalogs. Do I establish my own catalog of suspicious objects? I do not know, but I do have time to work on it. By the way, one of those small star groups looks like a miniature Big Dipper made up of 12 and 13 magnitude stars, only a couple of arc minutes across. Very neat. About 15 to 20% of the time, the photos show a group of stars in the area but not exactly where I plotted one on the map. The remainder of the times there is nothing there, and this is a problem. What did I see? I have no idea. I will continue to work on this project. As mentioned earlier, I also made maps on the back of my log sheets. I have only begun to go through those. Prior to 1988, before I got the atlases, these log sheets maps are all that I have. I suspect that many of the log sheet maps I drew after 1988 are objects duplicated on my star atlases. 
I'll know that for sure once I start getting to those log sheets. By matching these, I can get a better position for those X's on the star atlases. A final step of putting all this together is to re-examine each object with the same telescope I used to observe them originally and do that under dark skies from where I live, I can carry this out. Go to the telescope with a copy of my original drawing and the detailed photograph of the area. That will clear up some of the near misses where I might have misplotted an object by a fraction of a degree. It will also help in the instances where I, I thought I saw something, but the photos show nothing is there. It would be odd if I had picked up some undiscovered comets that were never discovered. That would be hard to prove and perhaps pointless as such a comet would be unconfirmable. But if I had seen an undiscovered comet that was later discovered, then we might be able to confirm that I had seen it too. It will not change anything. They will not rename the comet. It would just be a fun fact. As I said, this is a work in progress. I'll keep you posted on this in future podcasts. Okay, I've got an idea. And I will do something different in next week's podcast, different than anything I've done before. I will present a lecture, a very special lecture about the Massey Marathon. And how is this different? Let me explain. In the past 45 years, I've given about 150 lectures to local astronomy groups, community clubs, and big conventions about astronomy. This does not include my talks at the junior college nor the Placer Nature Center. 150 talks are only about three a year. I go when I'm invited, and there are many years when I was working many hours a week and raising a family, so I did not do the lecture circuit for years at a time. My goal in life was not to make myself popular, but live a meaningful, balanced life with those who needed and loved me. I have given talks about the Messe Marathon from time to time, beginning in August of 1979. As for comets, I have talked about comet hunting and have done a few comet tours hitting several places within a few months. One was centered on Halley's Comet in 1985 and 86. One on Comet Hale-Bopp 10 years later as it was nearing the sun. And another tour I gave was in late 2004, early 2005, about my 10th comet discovery as it became a bright object. Those were fun tours. Presently, my family is raised and I'm semi-retired and I'm available to give talks to astronomy clubs via Zoom. I have done a few with my next one in late November. That talk will be about visual comet hunting. As we approach that date, I will ask for those of you who want a link to view the talk to write to me, but not yet. The world does not seem ready for live talks, but I am revising my live comet hunting talk to make it funnier than ever. A guy in Houston once wrote that my comet talk was the funniest he has ever heard. I'm making it even better. It is a multimedia event, 
and I aim to make it the most fun astronomy meeting you will ever attend. And when I'm invited to present that talk, if ever, I'll let you know so you can grab a plane ticket and join in on the fun. But back to the Messe Marathon talks. In 1982, I wrote the talk in rhyme, which is, it was a poem, a very long poem. My complete talk rhymed. I had slides that showed on the screen every line or two. Looking back through my notes, I see I did this talk at least twice as I have two versions of this rhymed talk. So that is what you will get next week. Don't worry, we will have fun. And you'll learn something about Charles Messier, his catalog, and the Messier Marathon. I will edit them between now and then and get the best of both lectures and roll them into one. That will be next week's podcast, Podcast 94. To recap this podcast, what's up this coming week? See Jupiter and Saturn in the daytime. Show the moon and planets to your family and friends on Saturday, October 16th. Venus and Antares make a fine pair on Friday, October 15th. And get out and see Comet 29P. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 93 for October 31st, 2021. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. You can contact me at donTheAstronomer at gmail.com. Once again, all one word, donTheAstronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will discuss what's up in the sky. I'll read you a poem about the Messe Marathon. And the planet Mercury is in our morning sky. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.